People need to know that the Trinity and the Incarnation is at the heart of everything. They need to see it for themselves, and you need to teach them explicitly and not just implicitly. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Every Knee Shall Bow, your weekly Catholic podcast on evangelization. I'm Mike Gomer-Gormley, and I am not joined by Dave, double portion of the Holy Spirit, Van Bickle. Pray extra hard for Dave's wife, Amber, who is not really having a good go of things lately. Me and Dave are going to record tomorrow morning. We kept trying last week and this week, and it just wasn't working. So due to today's uh, craziness, this show will be a little shorter. By a little, I mean a lot. And you're stuck with me and my horrible voice. So here we go. We are going to talk about the kerygma, and I'm going to give you five ways to beef up your kerygma game. Okay, number one, atonement theology. What? Also known as soteriology. These are the topics that you and I need to understand in order to better present the kerygma. The kerygma can be summarized as God saves, Jesus saves, right? We can talk about atonement theology. How did the death and resurrection of Jesus bring me salvation? Or soteriology, it's just a fancy Greek word for salvation. We can look at these things in an academic way in order to grow in our understanding and, this is the best part, comprehension. I want you to nerd out about the kerygma. Do you understand what the Catholic Church accepts and rejects when it comes to different theologies and theories of atonement, right? So why does the church reject penal substitutionary atonement that the Protestant reformers gave in the 1500s? So how do we do that? How do we beef up our kerygma game with atonement theology? Number one, the easiest and quickest way, Open up the Catechism of the Catholic Church in the first part, in the second section, and go look up uh, that Jesus died on the cross. Look up that Christ crucified section, flip to it, and read through from beginning to end. It talks about the death of Jesus as it relates to the Jewish people, the death of Jesus under the Roman crucifixion. What did that mean? You'll find a uh, uh, one of the paragraphs talk explicitly about substitution. But we still reject what we call penal substitutionary atonement. Maybe we'll do some theology episodes later on that, but it's a very important understanding. So go to the catechism first. Second, what I would encourage you to do is to explore different Bible verses that talk about the saving significance of the death and resurrection of Jesus. So for instance, go to Romans chapter five and read the whole chapter. Go to Romans chapter eight and read the whole chapter. Go to Galatians and read the whole book. The whole book is about it. Just learn why Jesus's death accomplished for us what it accomplished. You're going to have more theological doctrinal explanations in Paul than you will in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. In a way, the four gospels are a narrative theology of what the crucifixion is, whereas Paul is like dogmatic theology. It's just really like, I'm teaching you this, as opposed to I'm telling you this story of how God became king. Follow up, the Anglican theologian N.T. Wright wrote a book called How God Became King. It's very fascinating, very good. It's not 100% Catholic and doesn't 100% jive with it, but it definitely attacks penal substitutionary atonement. Another thing I'm going to tell you to do to up your atonement theology game is to get the canons on the Council of Trent. 
right? So this is when an ecumenical council is called. They're going after heresy. They release a bunch of paragraph statements that explain why they're condemning certain doctrines. Uh, one year they met, they talked about the doctrine of original sin and baptism. And then the next year they talked about the notion of justification. So it explains Catholic justification and then critiques especially John Calvin and Martin Luther's theories of atonement. So I'm telling you, you might not understand all of it because there is a lot of, it presupposes some Protestant theology knowledge, but you can still learn a lot from it. I would take it when I was reading Romans and Galatians, I would take the canons of the Council of Trent and I would just read them very, very slowly to make sure like, oh, okay, I see how they're understanding this. Okay, beefy way number two, how do you beef up your kerygma game? realize that this isn't, I'm not just giving you tips and tricks on how to give a talk where you insert the kerygma when talking about baptism, confirmation, how to go to confession, how to pray. No, no, no. This is for every stage of the Christian life. Every single thing that we do as Christians flows from the heart of the cross and resurrection. You need to see how it does for your own life. How does it do that for the sacraments? How does it do that for um, the church's teaching on sexual morality and the church's teaching on social issues? We need to see the cross and resurrection at the core. Otherwise, I'm going to tell you this. Stop going to mass and confession because you're doing it wrong. If you don't see the resurrection glory and victory of the cross, when you go to confession, you're doing confession wrong. So it's in these sacraments, in the liturgy, in my personal prayer, where I encounter the cross and resurrection. That's exactly the reason why the Holy Spirit gave the church these great sacraments. Okay, that's number two. Number three, the third way to beef up your charismatic game is realize that every teaching of the church is connected to the twin dogmas of the Trinity and the Incarnation that these twin foundation stones of divine revelation and all of theology give everything its meaning, its shape, its purpose, and everything refers back to the Trinity and the incarnation, everything. Why do we have a sacramental church? Because the word became flesh and dwelt among us, because that same word says, behold, I am with you always, yes, even to the end of the age, and sent the apostles out to baptize and teach all that I've commanded, right? The sacramental mission is tied to the authority of Christ that he lets the apostles share in. That is so important. Everything that we do is kingdom-centered, community-centered. Why? Because we're made in the image and likeness of a God who is not alone in and of himself. He's the mystery of the Trinity, fatherhood, sonship, and the bond of love that is the Holy Spirit. So that's important. People need to know that the Trinity and the incarnation is at the heart of everything. They need to see it for themselves, and you need to teach them explicitly and not just implicitly. One of my beefs with um, some of these teaching uh textbooks that we have is that when I would try to teach the kids, you know, first reconciliation and first Holy Communion, it never ties it back to the incarnation and the Trinity. It just assumes it without explicitly teaching it. We need to do that again, or else all of doctrine becomes a mishmash and it's hard to sort it out. There's no organic unity. Number four on beefing up your kerygma game is to realize that the goal of the Christian life, the end point, is inserting the individual believer into the mystery of Christ. The goal is participation in the mystery of Christ. That's why in the Eastern churches, they call the sacraments the mysteries. Over and over again, St. Paul uses that phrase, the mystery of Christ. And he uses the preposition in, which I've talked about before, the preposition in 
to describe our relationship with Christ in the Spirit. We are in him, in the beloved, in Christ. Over and over again, Ephesians chapter 1 goes all through that preposition in a million different ways as it applies to me and Jesus. I am in him and he is in me. Why? John 15, I am the true vine and you are the branches. We are the branches that come off of the vine that is Christ. We sever ourselves from him. We lose life. This is why mortal sin exempts us from the sacraments, removes us from the sacramental lifestyle. Why? Removes us from that life of charity because we no longer have his life flowing through us. We sever ourselves from the vine. That's what mortal sin is. That's why it's so grave, right? It's it's a spiritual suicide, a branch cutting itself off from the tree. So having a radical faith means uh, Jesus is no longer a branch off my life, but I am a branch off of Christ's life. That's the difference between a Christian who has radical faith in Jesus and someone that just sort of agrees with what the church teaches. And I'll tell you this much. When I was in high school and part of college, I was that guy. I looked like a Christian. I acted like a Christian. I talked like a Christian. But Jesus was a very important thing in my life. I, my life was not Christ. Let me put it that way. My life was not Christ's, right? Instead, it was the other way around. He was a part of my life. And that just don't fly. All right, number five, when teaching the faith, especially to children and to total noobs, right, total newbies, total rookies, there are four key areas of access to the mystery of Christ and Christian maturity, okay? That's the Bible as told through salvation history, liturgy, doctrine, and Christian living. These four things. There's a wonderful book called The Art of Teaching Christian Doctrine. I referenced it on a previous show. It was uh, written kind of at the beginning of Vatican II, it unified the movements known as the catechetical movement and the charismatic movement. And this is what they said. When you're teaching children, use these four principal methods. The Bible, through the narrative structure of the Bible, through the stories that it tells, you impart Christian knowledge. Okay? So the Bible, let people know salvation history. Let them understand Genesis and the patriarchs, Moses and the great Exodus event and the founding of the law. Let them understand the the reign of the judges, the rise of the kings and the prophets that condemned the wickedness, right? As they get an understanding of the Old Testament, they begin to understand the New Testament in a new way. Number two is the liturgy. The liturgy is the primary way that people consider themselves practicing Catholics. Oh, are you a Catholic? Yeah. Are you practicing? Yeah. Why? Well, I go to Mass sometimes, right? So if we understand the liturgy as that touch point by which I am a Catholic, then the amazing thing is, even though they're profoundly ignorant of what the liturgy is, we can leverage that in order to grow them into the mystery of Christ. So I take every opportunity here as a staff worker in a parish to evangelize. I put the kerygma when I'm teaching them about the Eucharist to people who are extraordinary ministers of Holy Communion. I did two training events. You can find the talks at uh, soundcloud.com slash amdgomer. And it says like the theology of the Eucharist, EMHCs or something like that. And the reason why I did that is I wanted people who are distributing Holy Communion to understand with great and profound reverence the history of the liturgical action that they are participating in, right? The, the idea of overcoming their ignorance with a love of the liturgy is our goal, right? So the Mass, uh, Liturgy of the Hours, 
uh, praying the liturgy of the word at home during this time of COVID. These are huge things. Number four is doctrine. You want to beef up your kerygma game when teaching the faith. We have to focus on, oh, excuse me, this is number three. Number one is Bible salvation history. Number two is liturgy. Number three is doctrine. We need to dispel the cleverly devised myths that are floating around our culture. We need to attack false human traditions that nullify the word of God. We need to put vagueness to death with simple, clear, and honest explanations of the doctors of the church. I can't tell you how many times I encounter people who love to talk about the love of God and the love of Jesus and his love is in our hearts and how do we receive that love, but they don't clearly explain what the church teaches. Brothers and sisters, we are hiding behind the kerygma or a fake version of the kerygma when we don't lay out the doctrine. They need to understand that the nature of mortal and venial sin as it relates to the cross or otherwise, what are we repenting from? They need to understand the doctrine of transubstantiation or otherwise, how did Jesus fulfill the bread of life that rained down from heaven with Moses and the Paschal lamb that was sacrificed that brought about their redemption and you had to eat the flesh of the lamb in order to be saved from the angel of death? How would they understand the Red Sea and a passing through the midst of the waters or the flood of Noah as it relates to baptism if they don't have clear doctrinal understandings of what baptism gives us, of what the Eucharist is, of what the church teaches about sexual morality and social justice and honoring my father and the political life of the church. These things are so important, but often you and I downplay the doctrines that we don't like or maybe don't fully understand, and we amplify the things that we feel like we're good in. But there's a problem with that. Jesus says, my teaching is not mine but his who sent me. So for everyone out there who teaches the faith, has conversations, disciples others, is a priest who give homilies, a deacon who instructs, everyone listening to me, we have to humble ourselves so that we can honestly say with Jesus, an imitation of our Lord and Master, my teaching isn't mine. It's not mine. It's not my agenda. My teaching isn't mine, but his who sent me. Okay. Lastly, Christian living. This should be understood in three ways. When you are maturing the faith of an individual into the mystery of Christ, they need to understand that it's not a Sunday thing. It's not a list of doctrines we believe, right? Hopefully by the salvation history and the liturgical approach, doctrine doesn't become this artificial list of things I have to believe or else I'm going to hell. It becomes a way of viewing the world. As C.S. Lewis says, it's not another object in the world that I see, but it's more like the sun, by which I see every object in the world, right? So Christian living needs to be understood in three ways. Number one, our moral life in Christ. Number two, that we need to have a devotional life that is deeply, profoundly personal. And we need to regularly practice the sacramental life, right? We need to have recourse to love of God and love of neighbor. How does my morality, how does growing in virtue right? Help my Christian living. Faith, hope, and love are virtues, but so is justice, prudence, temperance, fortitude. How do we help people grow in the virtues? You know, for a long time in the Middle Ages, the virtues were separated from the moral life and put in a category called spiritual theology. That's a darn shame. The only time in the church's teaching in about 500, 400 years, while this was happening in the late Middle Ages to early modern time, was when you were joining a religious order and the virtues were taught as part of just formation. But in the colleges and in the seminaries, virtues were distinguished as a spiritual thing and morality was reduced to nothing other than the natural law or the Ten Commandments. 
But the Christian doctrine, if you look at St. Thomas Aquinas, right, the second part is the secunde, right? The second part is all about the virtuous life or, or, or living the Christian life. And it's divided into the prima pars, the first part of the second part, excuse me, the prima secunde. The first part of the second part is where you get stuff like Questio 92 on the natural law, the eternal law, politics, political, you know, human law, divine positive law, all of these things. But we separated, we chopped the second book of Aquinas in half. The second, the, what we call the secunda secunde, is all on the virtues and the vices that oppose them. So for him, it was one unified thing. Law flows into virtue, which flows back into law. Only a virtuous person who's living justice can truly be a just man in both politics and in the faith, right? Both in the public sphere and with the church. So this recapturing of Christian living as a unified whole, my moral life is not divorced from my devotional or my spiritual life or my interior life. And all of that is not divorced from the life of the sacraments. That is the communal life of the church. We have to balance all of these. So the five ways, beef up your atonement theology, beef up your own relationship to the cross and all the things that you do. Number two, or number three, beef up how everything flows from the Trinity and the doctrine of the incarnation and really see how all of these things interconnect. Number four, beef up by realizing this notion of the mystery of Christ, that Christ is the true vine and I am in him. Finally, number five, through the Bible, liturgy, doctrine, and Christian living, this is how we impart to others this mystery of Christ by which they can have eternal life. We're going to take a brief commercial break. When we come back, thank you, fine folks at Ascension, we are going to talk about five practical takeaways that you can use from these five beefings. That's a weird thing to say. The five grass-fed, grass-finished, all-natural beef of the Kerygma. See you soon. I'm Jeff Cavins. I wrote The Activated Disciple because I know how easy it is to practice the faith and to study it, but what if we lived our entire lives without doing what we learned? God doesn't just call us to be students. He calls us to be disciples, to look and live like Jesus. If you yearn for a life that moves beyond just studying and believing, if you yearn to become an activated disciple, then this book is for you. The Activated Disciple teaches you how to take your faith to the next level so you can become an instrument for God to transform the world. To order The Activated Disciple, visit ascensionpress.com or Amazon. All right, now it's time for the five practical takeaways. Number one, study the catechism on the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You knew that one was coming. I said it in the beginning, and we're going back to that. Number two, memorize this verse, Romans chapter 5, verse 6. Everyone loves to have Romans uh, 4 and 5 up on their wall, chapter 5, verses 4 and 5. You know, hope does not disappoint, right? But I want you to memorize verse 6, chapter 5, verse 6. While we were yet helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. That's powerful. Memorize that. Number three, pray the first glorious mystery of the rosary for Amber, please. Number four, turn off the live stream of your church or whatever church you view and pray the liturgy of the word with your family or with your friends. Or if you are living alone and you're quarantined or you're in the hospital and you're listening to this, pray it internally 
with yourself. Just go through the liturgy of the word. Read the collect prayer in the beginning. You know, the let us pray. Okay. Read through all of that. And finally, number five, in the midst of all of this, I want you to recommit your life to Christ. Jesus, in your matchless name, I pray to you. I beg you for your mercy. And I trust myself entirely to you. All right, ladies and gentlemen, this has been this weird and awkward episode of Every Knee Shall Bow, your weekly Catholic podcast on evangelization. Me and Dave are going to record tomorrow morning, so hopefully we can start getting to some of your listener mail, um, emails that you've sent in, topics that you've requested. We're going to start plowing through that. Keep them all in your prayer. Email us at eksb at ascensionpress.com, and we will be sure to use it for an episode when we run out of ideas. God bless y'all.